Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I continue the story, The Princess and the Goblin. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 15 Woven and Then Spun Come in, Irene, said the silvery voice of her grandmother. The princess opened the door and peeped in. But the room was quite dark, and there was no sound of the spinning wheel. She grew frightened once more, thinking that, although the room was there, 
The older lady might be a dream, after all. Every little girl knows how dreadful it is to find a room empty where she thought somebody was. But Irene had to fancy for a moment that the person she came to find was nowhere at all. She remembered, however, that at night she spun only in the moonlight and concluded that must be why there was no sweet bee-like humming. The lady might be somewhere in the darkness. Before she had time to think another thought, she heard her voice again saying as before, Come in, Irene. From this sound, she understood at once that she was not in the room beside her. Perhaps she was in her bedroom. She turned across the passage, feeling her way to the other door. When her hand fell on the lock, again the old lady spoke. Shut the other door behind you, Irene. I always close the door of my workroom when I go to my chamber. Irene wondered to hear her voice so plainly through the door. Having shut the other, she opened it and went in. Oh, what a lovely haven to reach from the darkness and fair through which she had come. The soft light made her feel as if she were going into the heart of the milkiest pearl, while the blue walls and their silver stars for a moment perplexed her with a fancy that they were in reality the sky, which she had left outside a minute ago, covered with rain clouds. I've lighted a fire for you, Irene. You're cold and wet, said her grandmother. Then Irene looked again and saw that what she had taken for a huge bouquet of red roses on a low stand against the wall was in fact a fire which burned in the shapes of the loveliest and reddest roses glowing gorgeously between the heads and wings of two cherubs of shining silver. And when she came nearer, she found that the smell of roses with which the room was filled came from the fire roses on the hearth. Her grandmother was dressed in the loveliest pale blue velvet, over which her hair, no longer white, but of a rich golden color, streamed like cataract, hair falling in dull gathered heaps, there rushing away in smooth shining falls. And ever she looked, the hair seemed pouring down from her head and vanishing in a golden mist ere it reached the floor. It flowed from under the edge of a circle of shining silver, set with alternated pearls and opals. On her dress was no ornament whatever, neither was there a ring on her hand or necklace or carcanet about her neck. But her slippers glimmered with the light of the Milky Way, for they were covered with seed pearls and opals in one mass. Her face was that of a woman of three and twenty. The princess was so bewildered with astonishment and admiration that she could hardly thank her and drew nigh with timidity, feeling dirty and uncomfortable. The lady was seated on a low chair by the side of the fire, with hands outstretched to take her, but the princess hung back with a troubled smile. Why, what's the matter? asked her grandmother. You haven't been doing anything wrong, I know that by your face, though it is rather miserable. What's the matter, my dear? And still she held out her arms. Dear grandmother, said Irene, I'm not so sure that I haven't done something wrong. I ought to run up to you at once when the long-legged cat came in at the window instead of running out on the mountain and making myself such a fright. You were taken by surprise, my child, and you're not so likely to do it again. It is when people do wrong things willfully that they are the more likely to do them again. Come. And still, 
she held out her arms. A grandmother. You are so beautiful and grand with your crown on, and I am so dirty with mud and rain. I should quite spoil your beautiful blue dress. With a merry little laugh, the lady sprung from her chair. More lightly than Irene herself could, caught the child to her bosom, and kissing the tear-stained face over and over, sat down with her in her lap. Oh, grandmother, you'll make yourself such a mess, cried Irene, clinging to her. You, darling, do you think I care more for my dress than for my little girl? Besides, look here. As she spoke, she set her down, and Irene saw to her dismay that the lovely dress was covered with the mud of her fall on the mountain road. But the lady stooped to the fire, and taking from it, by the stalk in her fingers, one of the burning roses, passed it once and again and a third time over the front of her dress. And when Irene looked, not a single stain was to be discovered. There, said her grandmother, you won't mind coming to me now? But Irene again hung back, eyeing the flaming rose which the lady held in her hand. You're not afraid of the rose, are you? she said, about to throw it on the hearth again. Oh, don't please, cried Irene. Won't you hold it to my frock and my hands and my face? And I'm afraid my feet and my knees want it too. No, answered her grandmother, smiling a little sadly as she threw the rose from her. It is too hot for you yet. It would set your frock in a flame. Besides, I don't want to make you clean tonight. I want your nurse and the rest of the people to see you as you are, for you will have to tell them how you ran away for fear of the long-legged cat. I should like to wash you, but they would not believe you then. Do you see that bath behind you? The princess looked and saw a large oval tub of silver shining brilliantly in the light of the wonderful lamp. Go and look into it, said the lady. Irene went and came back very silent with her eyes shining. What did you see? asked her grandmother. The sky and the moon and the stars, she answered. It looked as if there was no bottom to it. The lady smiled a pleased, satisfied smile and was silent also for a few moments. Then she said, Any time you want a bath, come to me. I know you have a bath every morning, but sometimes you want one at night, too. Thank you, grandmother. I will. I will indeed, answered Irene, and was again silent for some moments, thinking. Then she said, How was it, grandmother, that I saw your beautiful lamp, not the light of it only, but the great round silvery lamp itself, hanging alone in the great open air, high up? It was your lamp I saw, wasn't it? Yes, my child. It was my lamp. And how was it? I don't see a window all round. When I please, I can make the lamp shine through the walls, shine so strong that it melts them away from before the sight and shows itself as you saw it. But, as I told you, it is not everybody can see it. How is it that I can, then? I'm sure I don't know. It is a gift born with you, and one day I hope everybody will have it. And how do you make it shine through the walls? Ah, that you would not understand if I were to try ever so much to make you. Not yet. Not yet. But, added the lady rising, you must sit in my chair while I get you the present I've been preparing for you. 
I told you my spinning was for you. It is finished now, and I'm going to fetch it. I have been keeping it warm under one of my brooding pigeons. Irene sat down in the low chair, and her grandmother left her, shutting the door behind her. The child sat gazing, now at the rose fire, now at the starry walls, now at the silver light, and a great quietness grew in her heart. If all the long-legged cats in the world had come rushing at her then, she would not have been afraid of them for a moment. How this was, she could not tell. She only knew there was no fear in her, and everything was so right and safe that it could not get in. She had been gazing at the lovely lamp for some minutes fixedly. Turning her eyes, she found the wall had vanished, for she was looking out on the dark, cloudy night. But though she heard the wind blowing, none of it blew upon her. In a moment more, the clouds themselves parted, or rather vanished like the wall, and she looked straight into the starry herds flashing gloriously in the dark blue. It was but for a moment. The clouds gathered again and shut out the stars, the wall gathered again and shut out the clouds, and there stood the lady beside her with the loveliest smile on her face and a shimmering ball in her hand about the size of a pigeon's egg. There, Irene, there is my work for you, she said, holding out the ball to the princess. She took it in her hand and looked at it all over. It sparkled a little and shone here and there, but not much. It was of sort of grey whiteness, something like spun glass. Is this all your spinning, grandmother, she asked. All since you came to the house. There's more there than you think. How pretty it is. What am I to do with it, please? That I will now explain to you, answered the lady, turning from her and going to her cabinet. She came back with a small ring in her hand. Then she took the ball from Irene's and did something with the ring. Irene could not tell what. Give me your hand, she said. Irene held up her right hand. Yes, that is the hand I want, said the lady, and put the ring on the forefinger of it. What a beautiful ring, said Irene. What is the stone called? It is a fire opal. Please, am I to keep it? Always. Well, thank you, grandmother. It's prettier than anything I ever saw, except those of all colors in your... Please, is that your crown? Yes, it is my crown. The stone in your ring is of the same sort, only not so good. It has only red, but mine have all colors, you see. Yes, grandmother, I will take such care of it, but, she added, hesitating. But what? asked her grandmother. What am I to say when Lutie asks me where I got it? You will ask her where you got it, answered the lady, smiling. I don't see how I can do that. You will, though. Of course I will, if you say so. But you know, I can't pretend not to know. Of course not. But don't trouble yourself about it. You will see when the time comes. So saying, the lady turned and threw the little ball into the rose fire. Oh, grandmother, exclaimed Irene, I thought you had spun it for me. So I did, my child, and you've got it. No, it's burnt in the fire. The lady put her hand in the fire brought out the bowl, glimmering as before, and held it towards her. Irene stretched out her hand to take it, but the lady turned and, going to her cabinet, opened a drawer and laid the bowl in it 
Have I done anything to vex you, grandmother? said Irene pitifully. No, my darling. But you must understand that no one ever gives anything to another properly and really without keeping it. That ball is yours. Oh, I'm not to take it with me? You're going to keep it for me? You are to take it with you. I've fastened the end of it to the ring on your finger. Irene looked at the ring. I can't see it there, grandmother, she said. Feel. A little way from the ring. Towards the cabinet, said the lady. Oh, I do feel it, exclaimed the princess. But I can't see it, she added, looking close to her outstretched hand. No. The thread is too fine for you to see it. You can only feel it. Now you can fancy how much spinning that took, although it does seem such a little ball. But what use can I make of it if it lies in your cabinet? That is what I will explain to you. It would be of no use to you. It wouldn't be yours at all if it did not lie in my cabinet. Now listen. If ever you find yourself in any danger, such, for example, as you were in this same evening, you must take off your ring and put it under the pillow of your bed. Then you must lay your finger, the same that wore the ring upon the thread, and follow the thread wherever it leads you. Oh, how delightful. It will lead me to you, grandmother, I know. Yes, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, and you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I hold it too. It is very wonderful, said Irene thoughtfully. Then suddenly becoming aware, she jumped up, crying, Oh, grandmother, here I've been sitting all this time in your chair, and you standing. I beg your pardon. The lady laid her hand on her shoulder and said, Sit down again, Irene. Nothing pleases me better than to see anyone sit in my chair. I'm only too glad to stand so long as anyone will sit in it. How kind of you, said the princess, and sat down again. It makes me happy, said the lady. But, said Irene, still puzzled, won't the thread get in somebody's way and be broken if the one end is fast to my ring and the other laid in your cabinet? You will find all that arrange itself. I'm afraid it is time for you to go. Mightn't I stay and sleep with you tonight, grandmother? No, not tonight. If I had meant you to stay tonight, I should have given you a bath. But you know everybody in the house is miserable about you, and it would be cruel to keep them so all night. You must go downstairs. I am so glad, grandmother, you didn't say go home, for this is my home. Mayn't I call this my home? You may, my child. And I trust you will always think it your home. Now come. I must take you back without anyone seeing you. Please, I want to ask you one question more, said Irene. Is it because you have your crown on that you look so young? No, child, answered her grandmother. It is because I felt so young this evening that I put my crown on. And I thought you would like to see your old grandmother in her best. Why do you call yourself old? You're not old, grandmother. I'm very old indeed. It is so silly of people. I don't mean for you, for you are such a tiny and couldn't know better. But it is so silly of people to fancy that old age means crookedness and witheredness and feebleness and sticks and spectacles and rheumatism and forgetfulness. 
It is so silly. Old age has nothing whatever to do with all that. The right old age means strength and beauty and mirth and courage and clear eyes and strong, painless limbs. I am older than you are able to think, and... And look at you, grandmother, cried Irene, jumping up and flinging her arms about her neck. I won't be so silly again, I promise you. At least, I'm rather free to promise. But if I am, I promise to be sorry for it. I do. I wish I were as old as you, grandmother. I don't think you are ever afraid of anything. Not for long at least, my child. Perhaps by the time I am two thousand years of age, I shall, indeed, never be afraid of anything. But I confess, I have sometimes been afraid about my children. Sometimes about you, Irene. I'm so sorry, Grandmother. Tonight, I suppose you mean? Yes, a little tonight, but a good deal when you had all but made up your mind that I was a dream and no real great-great-grandmother. You must not suppose I am blaming you for that. I dare say you could not help it. I don't know, Grandmother, said the princess, beginning to cry. I can't always do myself as I should like, and I don't always try. I'm very sorry, anyhow. The lady stooped, lifted her in her arms, and sat down with her in her chair, holding her close to her bosom. In a few minutes the princess had sobbed herself to sleep. How long she slept, I do not know. When she came to herself, she was sitting in her own high chair at the nursery table, with her doll's house before her. Chapter 16 The Ring The same moment, her nurse came into the room, sobbing. When she saw her sitting there, she started back with a loud cry of amazement and joy. Then running to her, she caught her in her arms and covered her with kisses. My precious darling princess, where have you been? What has happened to you? We've all been crying our eyes out and searching the house from top to bottom for you. Not quite from the top, thought Irene to herself, and she might have added, not quite to the bottom. Perhaps, if she had known all. But the one she would not, and the other she could not say. Oh, Lutie, I've had such a dreadful adventure, she replied, and told her all about the cat with the long legs, and how she ran out upon the mountain and came back again. But she said nothing of her grandmother or her lamp. And there we've been searching for you all over the house for more than an hour and a half, exclaimed the nurse. But that's no matter. Now we've got you. Only, Princess, I must say, she added, her mood changing, what you ought to have done was to call for your own Luti to come and help you, instead of running out of the house and up the mountain in that wild, I must say, foolish fashion. Well, Luti, said Irene quietly, perhaps if you had a big cat, all legs, running at you, you might not exactly know what was the wisest thing to do at the moment. I wouldn't run up the mountain anyhow, returned Luti. Not if you had time to think about it. But when those creatures came at you that night on the mountain, you were so frightened yourself that you lost your way home. This put a stop to Lutie's reproaches. She had been on the point of saying that the long-legged cat must have been a twilight fancy of the princess's, but the memory of the horrors of that night and of the talking to which the king had given her in consequence prevented her from saying what, after all, she did not half believe, having a strong suspicion that the cat was a goblin. For she knew nothing of the difference between the goblins and their creatures. She counted them all just goblins. 
Without another word, she went and got some fresh tea and bread and butter for the princess. Before she returned, the whole household, headed by the housekeeper, burst into the nursery to exult over their darling. The gentleman in arms followed, and were ready enough to believe all she told them about the long-legged cat. Indeed, though wise enough to say nothing about it, they remembered, with no little horror, just such a creature amongst those that had surprised at their gambols upon the princess's lawn. In their own hearts, they blamed themselves for not having kept better watch, and their captain gave orders that from this night, the front door and all the windows on the ground floor should be locked immediately the sun set, and opened after upon no pretense whatever. The men-at-arms redoubled their vigilance, and for some time there was no further cause of alarm. When the princess woke the next morning, her nurse was bending over her. How your ring does glow this morning, princess, just like a fiery rose, she said. Does it, Lutie? returned Irene. Who gave me the ring, Lutie? I know I've had it a long time, but where did I get it? I don't remember. I think it must have been your mother gave it to you, princess. But really, for as long as you've worn it, I don't remember that I ever heard, answered her nurse. I will ask my king papa the next time he comes, said Irene. Chapter 17 Springtime The spring so dear to all creatures, young and old, came at last, and before the first days of it had gone, the king rode through its budding valleys to see his little daughter. He had been in a distant part of his dominions all the winter, for he was not in the habit of stopping in one great city or of visiting only his favorite country houses, but he moved from place to place that all his people might know him. Wherever he journeyed, he kept a constant lookout for the ablest and best men to put into office, and wherever he found himself mistaken and those he had appointed incapable or unjust, he removed them at once. Hence you see it was his care of the people that kept him from seeing his princess so often as he would have liked. You may wonder why he did not take her about with him, but there were several reasons against his doing so, and I suspect her great-great-grandmother had had a principal hand in preventing it. Once more, Irene heard the bugle blast, and once more she was at the gate to meet her father as he rode up on his great white horse. After they had been alone for a little while, she thought of what she had resolved to ask him. Please, King Papa, she said, will you tell me where I got this pretty ring? I can't remember. The king looked at it. A strange, beautiful smile spread like sunshine over his face, and an answering smile, but at the same time a questioning one, spread like moonlight over Irene's. It was your queen mamma's once, he said. And why isn't it hers now? asked Irene. She does not want it now, said the king, looking grave. Why doesn't she want it now? Because she's gone where all those rings are made. And when shall I see her? asked the princess. Not for some time yet, answered the king, and the tears came into his eyes. Irene did not remember her mother, and did not know why her father looked so, and why the tears came in his eyes but she put her arms round his neck and kissed him, and asked no more questions. The king was much disturbed on hearing the report 
of the gentleman-at-arms concerning the creatures they had seen, and I presume would have taken Irene with him that very day, but for what the presence of the ring on her finger assured him of. About an hour before he left, Irene saw him go up the old stair, and he did not come down again till they were just ready to start, and she thought with herself that he had been up to see the old lady. When he went away, he left another six gentlemen behind him, that there might be six of them always on guard. And now, in the lovely spring weather, Irene was out on the mountain the greater part of the day. In the warmer hollows there were lovely primroses, and not so many that she ever got tired of them. As soon as she saw a new one opening, an eye of light in the blind earth, she would clap her hands with gladness, and unlike some children I know, instead of pulling it, would touch it as tenderly as if it had been a new baby, and having made its acquaintance, would leave it as happy as she found it. She treated the plants on which they grew like birds' nests. Every fresh flower was like a little new bird to her. She would pay visits to all the flower nests she knew, remembering each by itself. She would go down on her hands and knees beside one and say, Good morning. Are you all smelling very sweet this morning? Goodbye. And then she would go to another nest and say the same. It was a favorite amusement with her. There were many flowers up and down, and she loved them all, but the primroses were her favorites. They're not too shy, and they're not a bit forward, she would say to Luti. There were goats, too, about, over the mountain, and when the little kids came, she was as pleased with them as with the flowers. The goats belonged to the miners, mostly, a few of them to Curdie's mother, but there were a good many wild ones that seemed to belong to nobody. These the goblins counted theirs, and it was upon them partly that they lived. They set snares and dug pits for them, and did not scruple to take what tame ones happened to be caught. But they did not try to steal them in any other manner, because they were afraid of the dogs the hill people kept to watch them, for the knowing dogs always tried to bite their feet. But the goblins had a kind of sheep of their own, very strange creatures, which they drove out to feed at night and the other goblin creatures were wise enough to keep good watch over them, for they knew they should have their bones by and by. Chapter 18 Curdie's Clue Curdie was as watchful as ever, but was almost getting tired of his ill success. Every other night or so he followed the goblins about, as they went on digging and boring, and getting as near them as he could watched them from behind stones and rocks, but as yet he seemed no nearer finding out what they had in view. As at first, he always kept hold of the end of his string while his pickaxe, left just outside the hole by which he entered the goblin's country from the mine, continued to serve as an anchor and hold fast the other end. The goblins, hearing no more noise in that quarter, had ceased to apprehend an immediate invasion and kept no watch. One night, after dodging about and listening till he was nearly falling asleep with weariness, he began to roll up his ball, for he had resolved to go home to bed. It was not long, however, before he began to feel bewildered. One after another, he passed goblin houses, caves, that is, occupied by goblin families, and at length was sure there were many more than he had passed as he came. 
He had to use great caution to pass unseen. They lay so close together. Could his string have led him wrong? He still followed, winding it, and still it led him into more thickly populated quarters, until he became quite uneasy and indeed apprehensive. For although he was not afraid of the cobs, he was afraid of not finding his way out. But what could he do? It was of no use to sit down and wait for the morning. The morning made no difference here. It was dark, and always dark, and if his string failed him, he was helpless. He might even arrive within a yard of the mine and never know it. Seeing he could do nothing better, he would at least find where the end of his string was, and if possible, how it had come to play him such a trick. He knew by the size of the ball that he was getting pretty near the last of it when he began to feel a tugging and pulling at it. What could it mean? Turning a sharp corner, he thought he heard strange sounds. These grew, as he went on, to a scuffling and growling and squeaking, and the noise increased until, turning a second sharp corner, he found himself in the midst of it, and the same moment tumbled over a wallowing mass which he knew must be a knot of the cub's creatures. Before he could recover his feet, he had caught some great scratches on his face and several severe bites on his legs and arms. But as he scrambled to get up, his hand fell upon his pickaxe, and before the horrid beast could do him any serious harm, he was laying about with it right and left in the dark. The hideous cries which followed gave him the satisfaction of knowing that he had punished some of them pretty smartly for their rudeness, and by their scampering and their retreating howls, he perceived that he had routed them. He stood for a while, weighing his battle axe in his hand, as if it had been the most precious lump of metal. But indeed, no lump of gold itself could have been so precious at the time as that common tool. Then, untied the end of the string from it, put the ball in his pocket, and still stood thinking. It was clear that the cob's creatures had found his axe, had between them carried it off, and had so led him he knew not where. But for all his thinking, he could not tell what he ought to do, until suddenly he became aware of a glimmer of light in the distance. Without a moment's hesitation, he set out for it, as fast as the unknown and rugged way would permit. Yet again, turning a corner, led by the dim light, he spied something quite new in his experience of the underground regions, a small, irregular shape of something shining. Going up to it, he found it was a piece of mica or Muscovy glass called sheep silver in Scotland, and the light flickered as if from a fire behind it. After trying in vain for some time to discover an entrance to the place where it was burning, he came at length to a small chamber in which an opening, high in the wall, revealed a glow beyond. To this opening, he managed to scramble up, and then he saw a strange sight. Below sat a little group of goblins around a fire, the smoke of which vanished in the darkness far aloft. The sides of the cave were full of shining minerals like those of the palace hall, and the company was evidently of a superior order, for everyone wore stones about head or arms or waist, shining dull, gorgeous colors in the light of the fire. Nor had Curdie looked long before he recognized the king himself and found that he had made his way into the inner apartment of the royal family. He had never had such a good chance of hearing something. He crept through the hole as softly as he could 
scrambled a good way down the wall towards them without attracting attention, and then sat down and listened. The king, evidently the queen, and probably the crown prince and the prime minister were talking together. He was sure of the queen by her shoes, for as she warmed her feet at the fire, he saw them quite plainly. That will be fun, said the one he took for the crown prince. It was the first whole sentence he heard. I don't see why you should think it's such a grand affair, said his stepmother, tossing her head backward. You must remember my spouse, interposed his majesty, as if making excuse for his son. He's got the same blood in him. His mother. Don't talk to me of his mother. You positively encourage his unnatural fancies. Whatever belongs to that mother ought to be cut out of him. You forget yourself, my dear, said the king. I don't, said the queen, nor you either. If you expect me to approve of such coarse tastes, you'll find yourself mistaken. I don't wear shoes for nothing. You must acknowledge, however, the king said with a little groan, that this at least is no whim of Harelips, but a matter of state policy. You are well aware that his gratification comes purely from the pleasure of sacrificing himself to the public good. Does it not, Harelip? Yes, father, of course it does. Only, it would be nice to make her cry. I'll have the skin taken off her toes and tie them up till they grow together. Then her feet will be like other people's, and there'll be no occasion for her to wear shoes. Do you mean to insinuate I've got toes, you unnatural wretch, cried the queen, and she moved angrily towards Harelip. The counsellor, however, who was betwixt them, leaned forward so as to prevent her touching him, but only as if to address the prince. Your Royal Highness, he said, possibly requires to be reminded that you have got three toes yourself, one on one foot, two on the other. Ha ha, shouted the queen triumphantly. The counsellor, encouraged by this mark of favour, went on. It seems to me, your royal highness, it would greatly endear you to your future people, proving to them that you are not the less one of themselves, that you had the misfortune to be born of a son-mother, if you were to command upon yourself the comparatively slight operation which, in a more extended form, you so wisely meditate with regard to your future princess. Ha ha ha, laughed the queen louder than before and the king and the minister joined in a laugh. Harelip growled, and for a few moments the others continued to express their enjoyment of his discomfiture. The queen was the only one Curdie could see with any distinctness. She sat sideways to him, and the light of the fire shone full upon her face. He could not consider her handsome. Her nose was certainly broader at the end than its extreme length, and her eyes, instead of being horizontal, were set up like two perpendicular eggs, one on the broad, the other on the small end. Her mouth was no bigger than a small buttonhole until she laughed, when it stretched from ear to ear. Only to be sure, her ears were very nearly in the middle of her cheeks. Anxious to hear everything they might say, Curdie ventured to slide down a smooth part of the rock just under him to a projection below upon which he thought to rest. But whether he was not careful enough or the projection gave way, down he came with a rush on the floor of the cavern, bringing with him a great rumbling shower of stones. The goblins jumped from their seats in more anger than consternation, 
for they had never yet seen anything to be afraid of in the palace. But when they saw Curdy with his pick in his hand, their rage was mingled with fear, for they took him for the first of an invasion of miners. The king, notwithstanding, drew himself up to his full height of four feet, spread himself to his full breadth of three and a half, for he was the handsomest and squarest of all the goblins, and strutting up to Curdy, planted himself with outspread feet before him, and said with dignity, Pray, what right have you in my palace? The right of necessity, your majesty, answered Curdy. I lost my way and did not know where I was wandering to. How did you get in? By a hole in the wall. But you are a miner. Look at your pickaxe. Curdy did look at it, answering. I came upon it lying on the ground a little way from here. I tumbled over some wild beasts who were playing with it. Look, your majesty. And Curdy showed him how he was scratched and bitten. The king was pleased to find him behave more politely than he had expected from what his people had told him concerning the miners, for he attributed it to the power of his own presence. But he did not therefore feel friendly to the intruder. You will oblige me by walking out of my dominions at once, he said, well knowing what a mockery lay in the words. With pleasure, if your majesty will give me a guide, said Curdie. I will give you a thousand, said the king with a scoffing air of magnificent liberality. One will be quite sufficient, said Curdie. But the king uttered a strange shout, half halloo, half roar, and in rushed goblins till the cave was swarming. He said something to the first of them, which Curdie could not hear, and it was passed from one to another, till in a moment the furthest in the crowd had evidently heard and understood it. They began to gather about him in a way he did not relish, and he retreated towards the wall. They pressed upon him. Stand back, said Curdie, grasping his pickaxe tighter by his knee. They only grinned and pressed closer. Curdie bethought himself and began to rhyme. Ten, twenty, thirty, you're all so very dirty. Twenty, thirty, forty, you're all so thick and snorty. Thirty, forty, fifty, you're all so puff and snifty. Forty, fifty, sixty, beast and man so mixty. Fifty, sixty, seventy, mixty, maxty, leventy. Sixty, seventy, eighty, all your cheeks so slaty. Seventy, eighty, ninety, all your hands so flinty. Eighty, ninety, a hundred, altogether dundred. The goblins fell back a little when he began, and made horrible grimaces all through the rhyme, as if eating something so disagreeable that it set their teeth on edge and gave them the creeps. But whether it was that the rhyming words were most of them no words at all, for a new rhyme being considered the more efficacious, Curdie had made it on the spur of the moment, or whether it was that the presence of the queen and king gave them courage, I cannot tell. But the moment the rhyme was over, they crowded on him again, and out shot a hundred long arms, with a multitude of thick, nailless fingers at the ends of them, to lay hold upon him. Then Curdie heaved up his axe, but being as gentle as courageous, and not wishing to kill any of them, he turned the end which was square and blunt like a hammer, and with that, came down a great blow on the head of the goblin nearest him. Hard as the heads of the goblins are, he thought he must feel that. And so he did, no doubt. But he only gave a horrible cry and sprung at Curdie's throat. Curdie, however, 
drew back in time, and just at that critical moment remembered the more vulnerable part of the goblin body. He made a sudden rush at the king and stamped with all his might on his majesty's feet. The king gave a most unkingly howl and almost fell into the fire. Curdie then rushed into the crowd, stamping right and left. The goblins drew back, howling on every side as he approached, but they were so crowded that few of those he attacked could escape his tread, and the shrieking and roaring that filled the cave would have appalled Curdie, but for the good hope it gave him. They were tumbling over each other in heaps in their eagerness to rush from the cave, when a new assailant suddenly faced him, the queen, with flaming eyes and expanded nostrils, her hair standing half up from her head, rushed at him. She trusted in her shoes. They were of granite, hollowed like French sabots. Curdie would have endured much rather than hurt a woman, even if she was a goblin, but hair was an affair of life and death. Forgetting her shoes, he made a great stamp on one of her feet. But she instantly returned it with very different effect, causing him frightful pain and almost disabling him. His only chance with her would have been to attack the granite shoes with his pickaxe, but before he could think of that, she had caught him up in her arms and was rushing with him across the cave. She dashed him into a hole in the wall with a force that almost stunned him. But although he could not move, he was not too far gone to hear her great cry and the rush of multitudes of soft feet followed by the sounds of something heaved up against the rock after which came a multitudinous patter of stones falling near him. The last had not ceased when he grew very faint, for his head had been badly cut, and at last insensible. When he came to himself there was a perfect silence about him, an utter darkness, but for the merest glimmer in one tiny spot. He crawled to it, and found that they had heaved a slab against the mouth of the hole, past the edge of which a poor little gleam found its way from the fire. He could not move it a hair breadth, for they had piled a great heap of stones against it. He crawled back to where he had been lying in the faint hope of finding his pickaxe, but after a vain search, he was at last compelled to acknowledge himself in an evil plight. He sat down and tried to think, but soon fell fast asleep. Good night. <laughs>